0: If you've got a Bible, do do they want me to sing? No, I'm just kidding, that would not go well. Uh, If you've got a Bible, I'm not here for the singing, I'm here for the preaching, Uh, why don't you turn it to Mark chapter 14. Um, If you're just joining us, we are nearing the end of our series through the Gospel of Mark, which is um, one of four biographies we have of Jesus' life in the Bible. And really, for the better part of a year, what we've been doing is uh, looking at who Jesus is, what Jesus said, what Jesus did, so that we might better um, know, love, and follow Jesus into the fullness of life today. Um, And this morning, we come to the point in the story, like I said, we're nearing the end where Jesus is on trial for his life. Now, um, I don't know about you, but I'm fascinated by legal dramas. Is anybody with me on that one? yeah, a few of you. See, I, I don't know what it is for you. I think for me, maybe it was coming of age during the O.J. Simpson trial, and so that was just on everywhere you went uh, for some formative memories for me. It may have been watching Tom Cruise get Jack Nicholson to crack on the stand and say, you can't handle the truth. Like that, I think that left something on me. I, I, I don't know what it is, but for as long as I can remember, I've always been fascinated by legal dramas because... Um, You learn a lot about a person when they're on the stand. I mean, you can fake it. You can exaggerate who you are and your accomplishments and your actions. You can overstate things. You can pretend to be more than you are. But when you're on the stand, that's where the truth comes out. And um, Jesus' trial, it's no exception to that. We've come to this climactic point where everything's coming to a head and the question Mark's readers are asking, the question he's inviting you and me to ask today is, is Jesus full of it? This whole kingdom of God thing he's been proclaiming, all this grace, all of this love. Is this true, or is Jesus going to crack under pressure, and we'll see who he really is? Is this going to be the moment where you say, oh, all of that was performance, but now that I'm under oath, I can't actually say it? Well, grab your Bible, Mark 14. We're going to dive in and see it. And um, here's what I'll say. Um, I I, I think uh, in our text today, is the cross-examinations come Um, is Jesus is put under the pressure of a trial. We are going to, I'll give you a spoiler, we're going to get our big climactic moment in this trial. Um, And in this big climactic moment, Jesus is going to give the clearest description of who he is that he's given in the entire Gospel of Mark. So if you've just joined us today, you picked a great week to join us. Good on you, great timing. Um, And for those of you who have been here for the last year, my prayer for us has been, um, as I've prepared for this message, that the Holy Spirit might just... um, really bring to a head some of the things he's been saying to us in bits and pieces over the last year in this book that this might be an important morning for all of us where maybe those things come together in a powerful way. Are you ready? All right. Mark 14, we're going to pick it up in verse 53, says this. And they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, they came together and Peter... Had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony it did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet, even about this, their testimony did not agree. Now, um, you probably don't need a law degree to see that this is a mockery of a trial here. Um, But I actually want to unpack it because this is actually really significant to what's going on in this story. Mark tells us that Jesus is led by the armed guards we saw last week with the clubs and the swords. They lead him to the high priest. Now, unless you're one of those um, people that uh, really have a lot of discipline and really press in and get through the book of Leviticus and your Bible reading plan— that might sound like a throwaway line, like the high priest. Why, why, why do I care about the high priest? But I promise you, it's not. Um, from all the looks I'm getting here, Leviticus is probably not our favorite book of the Bible. Uh, let me just give you the Cliff Notes version because it sets up this whole story. Uh, here's the Cliff Notes version of the third book of the Bible. Time me. Um, God rescues his people out of slavery in the land of Egypt and brings them out for a life of freedom. And in order to have freedom, you have to know the God for whom you were made. Otherwise, life is just thin, it's shallow. God wants more for them than that. So God instructs them to build this place called the tabernacle, uh, kind of like a, a, a mobile temple where God's presence could dwell among them. They could come in the presence of their creator. It could be the Garden of Eden restored. They could walk in the fullness of life. This was the plan. But the problem was... The people of Israel um, were a lot like you and me. Uh, They sinned um, a lot. So they're not like you. They're like that person sitting next to you. They sin a lot. They've got issues. And so the problem was, okay, so God wants relationship with Israel, but they can't come into his presence. They can't come near the tabernacle or his holiness, his justice, his goodness. It'll consume them. And so what does God do? Well, he creates the sacrificial system. The book of Leviticus begins with Moses not being able to come near the tabernacle. The book of Leviticus ends with Moses entering in. And in between, we get the sacrificial system where um, God, through the shedding of the blood of an animal, through the loss of an animal's life, is able to give life to his people, is able to atone for their sins. Now, um, I want you to just think about your last week. How many animals would have to die for your past week? a lot. Some of you are honest. I'm loving this, like right there. Um, And so this was a very full-time job. This whole sacrificial system, it was a lot of work. So God not only gave them the sacrificial system, he gave them these people called priests who their whole job, their full-time vocation was to go into the tabernacle to slaughter the animals according to the sacrificial system, to go before God and represent the people and say, don't count their sins against them because they love you and by faith they, they believe that you'll pass over their sins. So the priest would represent the people before God, they would make atonement, Through the shedding of blood, and then they would walk out and they would go back to the people and say, Hey, your sins are forgiven. They would speak grace, they would speak mercy over them. And look, I I know this can sound kind of removed from our lives because we live on this side of the cross. Thank Jesus, the entire sacrificial system has been fulfilled through the work of Christ. So now, lamb, lamb's fine now, unless you like eating lamb, which I don't. So lambs are really safe around me, even though I'm a sinner. This could sound very removed from our lives, um, but we still have people, here's where I want to connect it today, we still have people that have priestly gifting today, even though the sacrificial system has been fulfilled in Christ, we still have people today who have a heart for people, who love to connect God's grace and his mercy to those who are in need. Do you know someone like this? I hope you do. These people are awesome. The world doesn't go around without it. We just run around yelling at each other all the time. Which now that I think about it, I'm like, man, we should I wonder if we're missing some priests in our world right now. But I, I know we've got them in this church. See, this is an incredible gifting and a posture to have, where where your posture Your primary focus is on people and a care to represent them before God and to connect God's mercy to those in their time of need. This is what the priests were. And so what the high priest was, is he was just the chief guy. So the high priest that Jesus comes before, he's like the mercy guy. Think about that person in your life, that they're always compassionate, they're slow to anger. You're like, why aren't you getting angry right now? And they're like, Well, I, you know, I bet they just had a bad week. This is the understanding, the merciful, the gracious person in your life. That's who the high priest is supposed to be. He's the mercy guy in Israel. And so think about the brilliance of the Jewish legal system. That the judge, this is the guy who's gonna stand judge over the trial, is the mercy guy. Isn't that cool? Like, this doesn't mean that they didn't do justice in their trials. No, far from it. But what it does mean is that the person presiding over the entire process had a heart bent toward compassion, had a heart bent towards mercy, and this whole thing was designed to make sure that an innocent person wouldn't get railroaded by a system out of control. Some of you are like, I might need to study Leviticus. This might have relevance for today. I don't know. I'll keep going, though. So the judge was the mercy guy. Um, but I will say this, this judge whom we, we learn his name from the other Gospels, you can read it this week. The story's in all four Gospels. His name's Caiaphas. This judge, he must not have read his job description very clearly because what he presides over is an absolute mockery of a trial. Um, under Jewish law, uh, capital uh, trials could not take place at night um, because like my grandma always told me, nothing good happens in the dark shady stuff goes on in the dark. And so what God said to his people is don't be shady with your legal proceedings. I know you think if the sun's down I can't see you and you're going to get away with stuff. So just you're finite, you're frail, just do it in the daylight. And so there was a law you cannot do capital crimes at night. But here we are in the middle of the night. This is a shady trial. And, and not only that, but um, under Jewish law, a uh, innocent verdict could be reached on the same day. But I'll spoiler alert, Jesus will not be declared innocent by these guys. And under Jewish law, uh, you could not proclaim a guilty verdict on the same day of the trial. You had to wait because, again, God knows we're finite, we're frail. He knows that sometimes we get hot-headed, we get caught up in emotion, and we don't let logic and reason and truth win out. We let our emotions win out. And so what he says, you need to go home, take a breather, and come back before you decide that because that's someone's life there. But that's not what happens in this trial. They're, sorry, I keep giving you spoilers. I got to save something for the end. Um, They're going to say about Jesus, you're guilty and condemn him to death in the dark of night. This is an absolute mockery of a trial. And all these rules aren't arbitrary. These are all designed to protect people from the system running out of control. But Mr. Mercy Guy, he, he didn't seem very interested in that. In fact, Mark says Mr. Mercy Guy is the one that's trying to drum up these false witnesses about Jesus. So it's a mockery of a trial, and then you get these witnesses who they can't even agree about the lies that they want to tell about Jesus. Hey, hey, I want to I want you to put yourself in Jesus's shoes. Have you ever had someone lie about you? Have you ever had someone um, slander you and defame your name, and tell lies about you in some of the most important in front of some of the most important people in society? If you've been there, you know what a wounding and disorienting experience this can be? This is what Jesus is experiencing. And remember what we saw last week. Jesus is already overwhelmed. Now he's being lied about and slandered. It's an awful mockery of a trial. And in light of that, I find Jesus' response just absolutely incredible. Um, He doesn't fire back and say, hey, does anybody have the time you know, because I, I just want to make sure you're not breaking the law, because you all look like a bunch of religious jerks, and I know the thing you guys care about is not breaking the rules, which you're doing right now. He doesn't do that. This is why we worship Jesus, not me, because that's what I would have said. Like, does anyone have a clock? What time's the sun come up? No, he, he doesn't fire back snarkily. Um, And he doesn't start telling them their sins out loud. Like, this is really rich that you want to lecture me. Do you know what you did last night? Do you know what you did last weekend? You think I didn't see? You think I didn't know? He doesn't fire back. He remains silent. Which for me, I'm just like, I I don't know how he did it. Again, I return to you. This is why we worship Jesus, not me. This is why my job is to tell you about the one worthy of worship, not to tell you how awesome I am. Because this place would empty out real quick in the latter case. Don't laugh too hard at that. Come on. I'm, I'm just kidding. That, that means you're tracking with me. I love it. So, Jesus remains silent. And and it's amazing. I don't know how he did it, but I will say it's a brilliant strategy. Um, And I actually think there's probably a whole sermon in here about um, letting fools run their mouths long enough to show their foolishness for all to see. Um, I'll just leave that as a side comment over there. The book of Proverbs is basically written about that. Jesus is displaying Solomon-like wisdom. Instead of arguing with these guys, he goes, I'll give you enough rope to hang yourself. You just keep talking so that everybody, Anybody can see what fools you are and how you're all lying about me right now. That's what goes on. These guys, they can't even agree in their testimony. This trial is really not going well. The high priest is like, I want to kill this guy. Mr. Mercy here is like, I want to kill this guy, but I can't drum up enough false witnesses to agree. These guys keep trapping themselves in their testimony. The trial's not going well. And so what the high priest does is he steps in. He sees that it's not going well, but he's already committed to uh, the outcome in his head before the trial start. He's not going to give up. And so we read this in verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and he asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and he said, what further witness do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. All right, this is our climactic moment. This is our, you can't handle the truth. This is the moment where it all comes to a head. And if you take nothing else from this sermon, I want you to be able to answer this one question Why did they kill Jesus? I don't know if you think about this often. But Jesus was really well liked for a reason. Um, Jesus went around giving out free lunches and teaching people the path to flourishing. And healing people of their sicknesses and loving people that society considered unlovable. In fact, the only people in the gospel of Mark that we see have an issue with Jesus are the religious people who think they don't need grace, who don't want the world to change, who want to protect their power, protect the status quo. But here's the thing... That may have been what motivated them to put Jesus on trial, that they hated him, that they didn't like how he spoke God's truth and challenged their life. But there's no law against hurt feelings. There's nothing in the 613 commandments of the Old Testament that says, thou shalt not hurt someone's feelings. It it ain't there. They cannot put him on trial for that. And so what these guys do is they they have to find something, because they're religious and legalistic, they have to find something that they can nail him to the wall on, and we get that charge here. And I, it's so important that you see this because people will lie to you about what actually happened in this trial. That's why all four gospels record this, just so we wouldn't have any doubt. The high priest says, Jesus, you're, why are you remaining silent? Don't you have something to say? These are very serious charges being made against you. Are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the blessed? Which is uh, a way of saying the son of God. They were just afraid to say his name because they didn't want to accidentally take it in vain. And here's what Jesus says. Listen again to his response in verse 62. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. There it is. That's what got Jesus killed. He claimed to be God. God. Now, um, you might say, well, where did he claim to be God? Uh, Well, that's what the talk of seeing the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds in glory is all about. This is a reference um, to Daniel chapter 7, um, a chapter that is just, it is incredible. It is one of my favorite chapters in the entire Old Testament. It's one of the places where you see plurality in the Godhead in the Old Testament, Um, and and what I'm tempted to do right now is to derail this and do a whole sermon on Daniel 7, because that's such an amazing chapter. But here's what I'll say. Um, I preached that sermon a year ago, right before we started Mark. So if you want to dive into that statement and that claim, check it out. The link's in the worship guide, in the discussion guide as well. I put it everywhere you could see it this week. But rather than derailing this sermon on Jesus's trial and doing Daniel 7, which, hear me, it's an amazing chapter. Karen's laughing because we had to workshop this last night. I think I'm going over time on this right now. Um, Rather than me unpacking Daniel 7 for you, um, let's let the chief priest unpack it. Let's listen to um, how the head religious guy in Israel in a room full of Bible scholars understood Jesus' reference to Daniel 7. Jesus says, I am. And more than that, you're going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory and listen to how the high priest responds verse 63 and the high priest he tore his garments and he says what further witness do we need you have heard his blasphemy what is your decision and they that's referring back to the chief priests the elders and the scribes read bible nerds seminary graduates these guys together they say he's guilty and they condemn him as deserving death. See, this might sound obscure to us, but to a first century Jew who knew the first two-thirds of their Bible, or really that was the Old Testament was their whole Bible, it was not obscure. They understood exactly what Jesus was saying. Jesus is claiming to be God. He says, I am the Messiah, and I'm not only the Messiah who's going to fix the world, I'm also the God who created the world. And they lose their in minds. They say blasphemy. They tear their clothes because they hear that Jesus is putting him on equal, himself on equal footing with the creator of all things. He was claiming to be God. And so the next time you have some hippie college professor tell you that Jesus, what a great moral teacher he was. We should listen to everything he says about some of the things he says. But he never claimed to be God. Don't get out of hand on that. A- ask that professor. Say, um, well, then why did they kill Jesus? I mean, you don't kill people that go around saying to love your neighbor and giving out free lunchables. It, like, we just People say this stuff and we don't even logically think through what we're saying. So don't be mean about it, but just ask, well, why do you think they killed Jesus if he was so awesome? And, and truly listen to the answer. That might be a great way to engage that person. But I'll tell you this, they don't kill people for saying, love your enemies, and here's a free lunch. You kill people when they make a claim on your life that you just can't stand. And that's what Jesus has just done here. Jesus says, I am the Messiah. And not only that, but you know that divine being from Daniel chapter 7, who rules alongside the creator of all things? who shares in Yahweh's throne, but he looks like a human. I'm not making this up. Go read Daniel 7. He says, yeah, that's me. And so you might think that you're in charge right now. You might think that you stand as judge over me. You might think that you're in control right now, but this is a mockery of a trial. And one day you're going to stand before my judgment seat, and we'll see how it goes for you then. You will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory. And he will bring judgment to the earth. He will restore what's good. He will remove what's evil. That's the context of Daniel 7. And at that, these guys lose their minds. They declare an illegal verdict. Same day in the cover of darkness, they declare him guilty of blasphemy, of taking God's glory for his own, of claiming to be one in the same essence as God himself. And here's the irony of this verdict. It's true. Sometimes your enemies will say true things about you in their anger about you. Not always. Sometimes they'll lie. But sometimes, this is how God works, he will use even the people who hate you to proclaim the truth. These guys, by declaring blasphemy, just declared... So that 2,000 years later, we, we can't say Jesus never claimed to be God. We could say the religious authorities of his day believed he claimed to be God. And so I don't know if you know Hebrew or not, but they thought he did. This claim, it is true. Jesus did claim to be God. And here's why he claimed to be God. I, I know I sometimes say obvious things, but this is important. He claimed to be God because he is God. Yeah. And and so the irony here is actually the high priest is the one that's blaspheming by denying the deity of Jesus. I mean, there's just irony all over this chapter. The high priest stands very religious, very serious, breaking all the laws. Jesus stands very quietly, very calmly, um, keeping all of the laws. The high priest declares Jesus, uh, accuses him, and the whole council finds him guilty of claiming to be God, when actually he is God, and they are the ones guilty as blasphemy for denying his own divinity. This whole scene is marked by irony. But again, we're reading this on this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is where things are coming to a head. We're like, this is the moment where they found out with no doubts. When he rode into Jerusalem, it was kind of obvious he was claiming to be Messiah. But this is the moment in human history where people finally realized the Messiah was going to be none other than God himself come to save us. And so the question then becomes, If this is true, that Jesus is God, that this verdict is ironically true, then if he really is the Son of Man who is going to come in judgment to restore the world, then why does he let these jokers stand in judgment over him? Why does he go along with this mockery of a trial if he really is the creator of all things? Why doesn't he fire back? Why doesn't he call down a legion of angels? They'll say, we'll see this next week. This is what they'll say is Jesus is hanging on the cross, dying, losing his breath. They're going to say, why don't you call down some angels from heaven? Don't you think you're God? What's wrong with you up there? And before we get to that scene and that mockery, Mark gives us an indication of why Jesus went through with this trial. Because I don't know if you caught it earlier. Um, He just kind of dripped this in there. Jesus is brought to the high priest. And oh, by the way, Peter's there. So after fleeing, Peter followed. This is classic Peter. Up, down, Peter. And so um, Peter comes at a distance He wants to see what's going to happen to Jesus, but he stays at a distance. He's not willing to be identified with Jesus, but he's curious. He draws in, and Mark concludes the story of this trial by telling us what happened to Peter. Verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. This is a tragic scene to close the story of Jesus' trial with. But Mark is making an important point. What he's telling us is, you don't have to be in a courtroom to be on trial. Um, Everyday life is a trial. And sometimes the trials feel relatively minor, like someone cuts you off in traffic. Um, Sometimes, other times, you feel like you're on trial for your life. And in these moments, when you are tried, your true character comes out. What What I said at the top is true. The reason that we love legal dramas is because you learn a lot about a person when they're on a trial. And that's fun when it's someone else. It's not so fun when it's you. And look, I know some of you, you are going through the ringer right now. Um, life, you feel that in your bones when I say life is a trial. You, you know that And some of you, you don't like what you're learning about yourself. Maybe you feel Peter's tears and grief and sorrow. Maybe you've been like Peter and called down curses on yourself, called yourself names. I can't believe I did this again. What's wrong with me? And here's the good news of this trial for you. If you've ever felt that way, here's the good news of this trial. Jesus knows your weakness. It's why he went through with this. I can say that confidently because Luke, in his account of this trial, tells us that as Peter is denying Jesus, Jesus makes eye contact with him. He looks out into the courtyard. He looks Peter into the eye. See, Jesus knows our weakness. Jesus knows that as he's on trial for his life and these guys are making fools of themselves— His beloved Peter is out there in the courtyard making a fool of himself. And this is why Jesus allows them to go through with this whole sham. Because by being declared guilty, Jesus can let the guilty Peter go free. And and here's what you've got to see about this. It's not just through his substitutionary work on the cross that Jesus frees Peter. Peter. And we talk a lot about that here, uh, and rightfully so, because without the death of Jesus in our place for our sins, we have no hope. But after Jesus dies in our place for our sins and rises again from the dead, uh, we get this story in John chapter 21 where Jesus comes to Peter. And as Peter denies him three times, Jesus comes to him three times and restores him three times. He gives him a chance to repent. He says, "Peter, do you love me?" Peter says, "You know I love you, Lord. Well, then then feed my sheep. Do you do you love me, Peter?" He asks him three times, just as Peter denied him three times. And it's this is beautiful picture of restoration. It's it's reminiscent of his initial call to Peter, follow me and I'll make you become a fisher of men. It's the last thing Jesus says to Peter. I I know what you've done. I've looked you in the eye. That doesn't change a thing. Get back up, follow me. I'm still going to make you a fisher of men. Here's the point. Jesus isn't just the sacrifice for our sins. He is also our great high priest who not only pays for our sins at the cost of his own life, but then he lives to say to us, when we're in our tears, when we're wallowing, going, I can't believe I did that again. He comes to us as an understanding and merciful and great high priest and says, come on back to me. That's not bigger than my cross. You might be shocked at you. I'm not shocked at you. Is that how you think about God? See, this is where the rubber meets the road on this message. When you fail like Peter, and I say when intentionally, because we all have been there, will be there again, probably this week, more often than we like to admit. When you fail like Peter, what do you envision God's face towards you looks like? Think about this. Next time you you come aware of your sin, just think, what what do I believe God's face looks like toward me? Because um, in my experience, most of us, we tend to think God's looking at us with a scowl. He's maybe just mildly disappointed in us. We know grace is a thing, but he's pretty frustrated. He has to give us his grace. Is that Jesus? I mean, that's, Caiaphas? That's the high priest who's supposed to be the mercy guy, but actually isn't the mercy guy. But no, that's not Jesus at all. Jesus is the true great high priest that Caiaphas was supposed to be. Listen to how the author of Hebrews puts it. This is in Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14. The encouragement is given to us. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, meaning he came from above because he's God. He's not Caiaphas, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy. And find grace to help in the time of need. See, I I don't know your story, but what I can promise you this. If you've trusted in Jesus, God's face towards you when you've sinned is come on home. That's what the author of Hebrews is telling us. No matter how many times you've done it, no matter what you've done, Jesus is not only the sacrifice for our sin that paid for that sin, but he is our great priest who lives to bid us come back home. I, I know what you did. I understand it. I took it on to myself. But that is not bigger than my cross, so come on back home. This is the ministry of Jesus, that he would be our great high Priest, and I'm telling you, if you believe in the moment of your sin, if you really believe that in spite of everything I've done, God's heart towards me is kind and he's bidding me to come home, that his passion is burning for me like a parent for a child who maybe has made foolish choices but cares more about the relationship and just says, come on home. If you believe that even for a second, I'm telling you this will change your life. I, I've experienced this. I've believed it for a second and it's changed my life. And then I forget this. And then my life looks a lot like it did before. And then I sin and by grace, when God makes this truth real to me, I'm telling you, it's like there's superpower in my veins. And if you've been walking with Jesus long enough, I know you know what I'm talking about. And Don't just take my word for it. Don't just take those here that amen, though I'm, that's what we're supposed to do. That, that, that way we know I'm not the only one here. Um. But I want you to take Peter's word for it. Peter, who looks mighty bad on this night. Peter, after Jesus restores him, goes from great tears to a great testimony for Jesus. Uh, read the book of Acts. Peter will stand up in front of the people that murdered Jesus, not a slave girl who had no power in society over him. He will stand up over the people who did have power over him in society, the same folks Jesus stood in front of. And he will say, you killed the author of life. Where did that come from? Where did the night and day change come from? Where did that superpower come out of his veins? You think he didn't want to be faithful that night? No, he followed because he wanted to. What happened between these two events is Jesus showed up to him. He was his great high priest. He was merciful. He restored him. And when Peter tasted that, it changed that man's life. And was he perfect? No. Read the book of Acts. Peter is one of my favorite guys because even after Jesus raises from the dead, Peter is still a high event character. He has great moments, but then he has moments where Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, is like, Peter, you just need to sit down and have a ham sandwich because you're making Jesus look really bad right now. <laughs> he is not perfect, but he is a different man living off of a power that cannot be explained by human flesh alone. I'm telling you, when you see that Jesus is not only your sacrifice, but your great high priest who this morning, in spite of your sin, is bidding you, come on home. I love you. I'm for you. I know about that thing there. I know about sin that you're not even aware of in your life, and it can't change my affection for you. When you see this, it not only frees you like Peter, but listen to what Peter says later in his life, years after this event. This is in 1 Peter chapter 2. I wonder if he was thinking back to this moment in front of the high priest. He writes this. Speaking to Christians, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy what a change in this guy. He goes from being afraid to testify to Jesus in front of the high priest's servant to saying to all Christians, hey, our great high priest has come. Mercy is available to all. And when you receive that, Jesus will make you into a priest who gets to go and proclaim the good news of God's mercy that's changed your life, that's met you where you're at, not just 30 years ago when you got saved, but 30 minutes ago when you swore at someone driving into the parking lot. God's grace that continues to meet you where you're at. This is Peter's testimony. That for us who trust in Jesus, we not only have a great high priest, but that he turns around and makes us into priests that have a heart for people and proclaim God's mercy and his forgiveness to those in their time of need. And look, you might say, hey, I don't have the priestly personality. I'm more about the message. I'm more about getting my ducks in a row. People are very messy and very difficult for me. What I would say to you is you may or may not have the priestly gifting, but if you are in Christ, you are a royal priest. You have a testimony. You have received grace, and no matter how it expresses itself through your personality, God has been gracious to you so that his grace might flow through you and through me to those around us and to fill this valley with the glory, the grace, and the goodness of Jesus. And so this is the adventure we get from the good news in this trial. We get to come to our great high priest this morning to stop pretending and get honest with him, to receive his mercy where we need it, because the grace of God means so much more when we actually apply it to our area of need. And when we do, he gets to send us out of here as priests that are proclaiming the good news of the one who brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. I feel led just to say this, that is our world grows more and more hostile to Christians and people of faith. Is our world calls us names and lies about us and misrepresents and slanders us? If you felt stressed out by that in the last week, I want you to remember the trial of Jesus. Have they done anything to us that they didn't do to him? Now let me ask you this, are you sinless? Because Jesus was, and they said that about him. See, this is the reality of a fallen world. In a fallen world, there is slander. There is name-calling. That's not what should surprise us. What should surprise us is that Jesus, who alone, like, people have lied about me, but there are things you could say about me that are actually bad. I'm messed up. I'm a sinner. Not Jesus. But Jesus endured a mock trial so that he could become our great priest, forgive our sins, call us home, and send us out with good news to the very people that are reviling us, looking down on us, thinking that we're backwards. We, like Jesus, instead of snarkily firing back at them and commenting on Facebook, we can be silent and we could extend the good news of his grace. That, hey, I know we might disagree on this area of morality, but can I tell you about the God who called me out of darkness into marvelous light? Like, would you respect my story enough to hear how he has changed my life? We get to become compassionate priest in the service of our great high priest and king jesus that's the adventure church that's what god has us here for and if that doesn't sound exciting for you then i'm going to pray for us until it does because this is the mission of jesus and he invites us into it let me pray for us jesus i thank you that you're not snarky like me I thank you that your identity is so secure in the love that you've always had with the Father from before the foundation of the world that when fools like me pop off their mouth at you, you didn't fire back, but you were faithful. I thank you that you are willing to go to the cross that you didn't deserve so that we who do deserve death could experience life. And so Jesus, I pray for a miracle this morning. I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to take the truth that was revealed in this trial and apply it to our lives? Would you help us to see the good news that we not only have our sins paid for, that we not only have a good priest, but that God himself, you are our priest. And so the one that we have sinned against is the one who calls us home. Would you somehow work that truth into our hearts this morning, that we might stop running from you and run to you to drink deeply of your grace? Um, I believe as you do that, Jesus, the most natural thing will be for us to pass out of here. More alive to that love and more engaging as compassionate priests in this world. God, we need it, and so we ask that you would do these things in your beautiful name. Amen.